2: last
0: weekend on sudanese state tv the newsreader sat behind his desk with his hands folded looked into the camera and assured the sudanese people that the situation was calm and controlled But in the background, gunshots could be heard and they grew louder and louder. Until mid-sentence, the broadcast cuts off. Three years after the revolution that brought down the Sudanese dictator... Omar al-Bashir, the country has once more been plunged into turmoil. A power struggle is now going on as two generals are at war over who should control the country. One is the head of the army and the de facto leader of Sudan, and the other, until recently, was his deputy, who controls a powerful paramilitary group of his own. And it's the people of Sudan who are now caught in the crossfire.
2: Medical supplies are running out, water and electricity supply are running out, the shooting over our
1: heads.
0: With fighter jets overhead and the sound of heavy bombardment ringing out across the capital, people are trapped in their homes as ordinary neighbourhoods have been turned into a war
2: zone. You know, and oh, okay, I don't know if you can hear, there's like some bombs going yeah. off in the background. OK.
0: Today is the seventh day of fighting. Every attempt at a ceasefire has failed. Hundreds have died and thousands are injured. And those who can
1: are fleeing. Japan is preparing to evacuate its nationals from Sudan. Other evacuation plans have been difficult to orchestrate as foreign diplomats have been attacked. The government of Uganda has started taking crucial steps
2: to ensure the safety of its citizens there.
0: So who are the two generals fighting over Sudan? And how did they emerge from the country's blood-soaked history? And what do Russian mercenaries and vast hordes of gold have to do with the current conflict? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, a tale of two generals. What's going on in Sudan?
2: I think it was 8.30 in the morning, a friend of mine just texted. She's like, there's reports of brief clashes in an area next to a fresh fruits and vegetable market called the Central Market. Just be wary. That's all the message was. And then half an hour later, boom, literally around us everywhere. We could just hear the bombardment and the, the bullets flying. So it went from being a clash between a few troops to just being spread out all over the city within half an hour. My name is Dalia Muhammad Abdul I'm a Sudanese citizen. I'm in Khartoum, Sudan. I'm a, a baker and I'm also a political commentator on Sudanese issues. Dalia's
0: bakery, Dunyat Dalia, is in Al-Amarat, one of the most prestigious neighborhoods of Sudan's capital, Khartoum. When we spoke to her, she was
2: in the same neighbourhood, trapped in her home because of the fighting. I'm in an area called Amar- Amar- Amarat, which is very close proximity to the airport. So geographically, I think we're in the southern side of, of Khartoum. And it's the hub of the clashes because the, the airport is a, is a very strategic infrastructure to, to control, of course. And then at the same time, the militia has been establishing bases inside residential neighbourhoods in the capital. And one of those neighbourhoods is literally a five-minute car drive from where I live. So from the start, we've been caught in the middle of it and there's not much we can do.
0: And what does that, what does that mean for you? I mean, is there fighting outside now? Can, can you leave? Can you, no, can you leave your can't. home? No, we
2: can't. Even when they've had like three hours of safe passage. A, a ceasefire. Yeah, they had them for, for the past two days. We couldn't use it because they were continuously fighting The safe passage was from 4 to 7 p.m. We're still fasting because it's Ramadan, and we break our fast around 6 o'clock. So we'd, we'd be getting ready to break our fast, and we can still hear the bombardment going on. So there was no safe passage for us. We couldn't go get supplies. There's been looting in our neighborhood, in our area, of the supermarkets, the corner shops.
0: Daria, for you, what does that mean? I mean, do you have supplies? Do you have food? Do you have we do everything
2: you need? We do. We're ra- we're trying to be smart and we're rationing our use of water, our use of food, because we don't know when next we'll be able to get anything. But at the same time, none of no one has no one is in the mood to eat anything. We barely break our fast. We drink water, and that's it. Right now, we're just trying to keep our wits about us. We're just trying to be rational and logical. So we don't get caught by surprise if anything does develop. And who, who are you with? Uh, my, my family, my mother, brother, his wife, my nephew and nieces. We're around 10 people in the house.
0: And if you can't leave to get more supplies, I mean, how many more days could you cope with so many people in a house?
2: Uh, maybe five, six, maybe a week.
1: And
0: how, how, is, how is morale? How, how are your nephews and nieces?
2: They're the worst hit. They literally jump at every single sound. We try to comfort them, but it's, it's not working because it's continuous. I mean, getting woken up at 4.30 and told, we need to move to this other room because it's safer. It, it just hits differently when you're a child. I can handle it, barely. My niece is 11 years old. She can't. It's really affecting her. And my other niece is two years old. We keep telling her every time we hear the sound of like the bullets or the artillery, we're like, oh, it's a plane. It's a big plane. It's a small plane. Just to get her mind out of it. But she literally jumps. I mean, she jumps and she just throws herself at her mother or at me or at her father because it's, the sound is shocking. I mean, even as an adult myself, I'm jumping every five minutes at the sound of something going off.
0: I mean, it sounds absolutely terrifying. Just tell us a bit about, firstly, what, what has Sudan been like? What is it actually like as a place to live?
2: It's home. It's where I grew up. It's where my parents grew up. And it's just, ever since we've gained independence from Britain, we've been struck down by civil wars and conflict. But we always thought the better days are ahead of us, you know? It can't get any worse than this. But every single time we get beaten by a stick and it gets worse and worse. I mean, what's happened in the past days is the lowest point that we have hit as Sudanese because the fighting has literally been brought into the capital. Imagine something like this happening in London. It's just madness And then you you hear that the head of your army is using fighter jets in neighborhoods to wipe out his enemy. Okay, this is neighborhoods where you have family, you have friends. It's where you went out for dinner. It's where you went out for coffee. And it's being bombed. And you have literally men in camouflage just walking around and you can't do anything. And this is your home. There's no other way of me being able to describe it except it's a nightmare.
0: a sense of how we've got here so this is now a struggle you've got the head of the army using fighter jets in ordinary neighborhoods in order to take down his enemy who until recently was his deputy these are two generals at war with each other in khartoum just give us a sense of who these characters are tell us a little bit about them Burhan
2: is the head of the army
1: general abdul al al-Burhan is head of the regular army a career soldier from northern Sudan, who rose the ranks. In 2019, he was sworn in as Sudan's interim leader. Hemeti is a
2: warlord who's been embraced by a number of states
1: in the region. General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, otherwise known as Hemeti, is commander of the so-called rapid support forces, which in turn emerged
0: out of the notorious Janjaweed, that fought in the Darfur civil war.
2: The RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, it's the legal name for what are known as the Janjaweed, the the Arab militia. It's a paramilitary group hired by Omar al-Bashir, the former president, to help him fight the rebels in Darfur. So they've been like given a facelift, a face, a makeover, and they've been rebranded as the RSF. And, but they're still headed by General Hamad Daglo. He's known as Himiti. During the time when they were operating in Darfur, they managed to secure a lot of gold mines. That was one of the ways that Himiti is able to finance his troops. And so these two men are vying for power. It's like a chess game for them. Who's going to make the best move? And they're both trying to like set themselves up as the saviors of the country, as the as the saviours of the people. But they're actually the ones who put us in this position. These are power-hungry individuals who do not care about the welfare of their people. They care about who ends up being in control. And I suppose the third
0: character, who isn't part of the current struggle, but you know, none of this would happen without him, I suppose, is Omar al-Bashir. Just tell us a bit about him. What was he like as a leader? And why did his, even when he's gone, why is
2: there so much trouble? He was a dictator. He was a merciless killing machine dictator.
1: Omar al-Bashir has been charged with very serious crimes, including the crimes of genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. These are all related to the country's very, very abusive uh, counterinsurgency campaign in Darfur. He
2: placed us under sanctions for so many years because of what he and the Islamists did.
1: Activists are urging Congress to enforce the sanctions imposed to force the government to stop killing its own people.
2: They supported terrorism. They hosted uh, Osama bin Laden. It was just a nightmare. He made Sudan a pariah state. We were shunned everywhere. The rule of Omar al bashir was a disaster. It was a disaster. And the fact that it continued for 30 years, I don't know how we put up with it or how... We allowed it to happen. And then we were able to overthrow him, only for us to go into something even worse.
0: Dalit, take us back to that moment, because in in 2019, when Omar al-Bashir, after 30 years of dictatorial rule, 30 years of oppression... He was overthrown, and to be honest, a lot of the world was quite surprised by how it happened and how peaceably it seemed to happen. Just remind us what happened back then and what followed.
2: The people took a stand. We didn't wait for the politicians. The people just realized enough is enough. In April of 2019, the 30 year reign of Sudan's Omar al-Bashir came to an end. Like previous Sudanese leaders, he was finally toppled by the army, which sided with the people over the president. And it grew from being very small protests, like a handful of people, to seeing literally the whole country out protesting. And in a way, Omar al bashir was the unifying factor because everyone was against him. It was after that, that's when the cracks began to appear because that's when partisan beliefs began to emerge like from this party or that party. And it's where individual opportunists began to strike out, wanting to have a piece of the pie. So having all come
0: together to get rid of Omar al-Bashir, you're stuck with working out who runs
2: the country afterwards. And, and how do we get them all to work together in unison? Because before, they all had one common enemy, which was Omar al-Bashir, and now he's gone. And then no one ever thought, okay, what's going to happen afterwards? Because no one thought we could actually reach that point.
0: And what, why did the, the military and the, the militias end up being such a big part of, of how
2: the country was run? So RSF and the army, they've had like a, an uncomfortable alliance, but one that suited both their interests. So it suited their interests during the revolution. RSF joined with the military to overthrow long-ruling autocratic leader Omar Hassan al-Bashir in a coup. So they were able to like maneuver and get themselves seats at the table in terms of the civilian government.
0: The Sudanese military has set up a transitional military council to rule the country for two years. Tens of thousands of protesters marched in celebration on the streets of Sudan as the news broke that al-Bashir's authoritarian rule has ended.
2: And then it suited their purposes when they decided to oust the civilian government. This
0: was the second coup they'd carried out together. Two years ago, the two generals removed the civilian part of the joint military-civilian government and took
2: over themselves, promising that elections would eventually follow. They've been moved to establish a framework where the country could move towards uh, a civilian government. That was the agreement that they've been working on for the past few months. But the problem was these two men cannot be trusted. Tensions have been heightened across Sudan over recent weeks as a scheduled date for the transferal of power from military rule to civilian government expired with no transferal taking place. There was also a breakdown in relations when it came to the time period for when the RSF can be merged into the army to become one unit. There's now a standoff between the RSF and the head of the army over the timetable for the change and then, of course, who will be in charge? Himiti wanted ten years. The army wanted two years as a time frame, and that was the breakdown. There was other reasons, but that was one of the biggest issues between the two.
0: With tensions between the two generals already rising, did foreign pressure make things worse? Coming up, we'll find out what the Wagner Group of Russian mercenaries are doing in Sudan. That's in just a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
0: with their two separate armies fighting for power. And then the plot thickens. Since 2017, Sudan has also been home to a band of Russian mercenaries, the infamous Wagner Group. And if you're wondering what they're doing there, let me introduce you to a man who's written a book about their African adventures.
1: My name is Dr. Samuel Ramini. I'm an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. And I'm also a tutor of politics at the University of Oxford. And I've written a book uh, entitled uh, Russian Africa, as well as another book entitled Putin's War in Ukraine.
0: You've, you've been busy. Yeah. Just remind us a bit about
1: who the Wagner Group is and what they've been doing in Sudan. So the Wagner Group, it's officially a private company that's uh, financed... Uh, by Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, a Russian oligarch who's close to Vladimir Putin, but unofficially it acts as an organ of the Russian uh, security apparatus. With respect to Sudan, the Wagner Group has had a presence there for some time. It's likely they arrived in 2018, and over the past few years, the Wagner Group has uh, maintained a variety of roles. The most consistent one has been the guardianship of gold mining assets inside Sudan, and some of those gold mining assets have enriched Hemeti the head of the Rapid Support Forces, who's involved in this current conflict, and also been uh, funneled through Dubai, perhaps back into Russia itself, to finance uh, war efforts in Ukraine. And another thing that the Wagner Group has periodically tried to do in Sudan is try to maintain authoritarian stability, because Russia has been deeply suspicious of a democratic transition in Sudan. And uh, during the revolution against Bashir in 2018, and early 2019, the uh, Wagner Group forces tried to offer a variety of strategies to the Sudanese leadership on how to combat unrest, such as delegitimizing the protesters.
0: So Samuel, essentially, Sudan is key to the Wagner Group because they're using the gold in order to help fund their efforts in Ukraine. You mentioned that in order to do that, they've been working very closely with Hermeti, one of the generals involved in this conflict. Just give us a sense of how close that
1: relationship is the linkages between Russia and Hemeti are relatively new. I think it is likely that the Wagner group has established relations with Hemeti over the past uh, 12 to 18 months and is primarily geared at ensuring that they have a financing source for military operations not just in Ukraine but also across the globe. So this is been a useful relationship in that regard if they can kind of coordinate on gold smuggling and gold movements. It's also important to keep in mind that Hemeti's uh, cooperation with Russia seems to extend well beyond just working with the Wagner Group. Uh, Pimenti was a visitor to Russia immediately before the invasion of Ukraine, where he supported Russia's recognition of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics conditionally, and mm. also held discussions about everything from wheat shipments and economic investments to the Red Sea.
0: General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalu Middi held a press conference. He said that the Russian naval base will be established in the city of Port Sudan in the Red Sea.
1: And Samuel, how much
0: do we think they've contributed to the current chaos? Have they had any role in, in what's turning into uh, a civil war?
1: There's been some speculation, obviously, that Group instructors have been uh, supporting him. But I would be very careful at uh, overestimating Russia's role. Russia's relationship with Sudan is, is strategic. It's, uh, it's lasted for well over two decades. Because of that strategic interest, it uh, wants to balance all sides to make sure that it's, uh, it's in touch with the winning party. And uh, I also think that because they have long-term basing desires in the, in the Red Sea, they have desire to keep control over these gold mines, and also Sudan has been historically an important uh, purchaser of Russian defense equipment, they don't want a failed state they don't want uh, a total state of anarchy or civil war that could disrupt those business deals and geopolitical opportunities.
0: And obviously, Russia isn't the only country that has interests in Sudan. How much do you think the the current civil war is about political ambition or actually about sort of a, almost a proxy war between some of these foreign interests?
1: This conflict is uh, as heart local. Buran and Emeti, even though they were jointly power brokers, have never had a positive uh, relationship at all. And over the past year, we've seen them court other international patrons. So Hameti visited Russia. Burhan made a subsequent visit to the UAE. So they are vying for rival international patrons, but that's because they're looking for external support. It's not necessarily a proxy war in the sense that external powers are just using Burhan and Hameti as pawns we may see some partiality from some external powers, one side or another, the Russians and the Emiratis for Hameti, Egypt, Turkey, likely for Burhan, but uh, mostly international players have at least in their rhetoric talked about de-escalating this. So that's why I think the international dimension is important, but we shouldn't overblow it at the expense of what is really a local fight and a fight between two very power hungry and very uh, ruthless personalities.
0: Away from the international dimension, the people suffering because of these two power-hungry and ruthless personalities are people like Dahlia, who is still trapped at home on the southern side of Khartoum. As an activist, she went out and protested to topple Sudan's last dictator, but with a new civil war breaking out and generals running the country, how does she now feel about the prospect? of one day seeing a free and democratic Sudan.
2: Um. At this moment right now, that's just a dream. But I think we've hit the nadir, the rock bottom of what we can hit as a nation, as a country, as people. What will you do? Will you, will you stay there? Will you try and leave? I personally would not leave, but I would look into my mother, for example. She's elderly and the younger kids in the family, maybe. But I don't think I would leave. We can't leave when the going gets tough.
0: And Dahlia, I understand you used to run a bakery. Is that something you, you think you'll be able to get back to anytime soon?
2: I hope so. I mean, baking makes me happy. Cakes and muffins, they make people happy, so... I hope I can get back to it. I mean, I was planning to. Once Ramadan was over, I was going to start again. I mean, it's my work. It's what I enjoy. It's what I love to do. And it's it's been taken away from me. Just like so many other things have been taken away from so many other Sudanese. But I'm a glass-is-half-full type of girl. So I'm really optimistic that we can all start rebuilding this country of ours and just move forward. That's all I can ask for at this moment in time.
0: Since we spoke to Dahlia, her house was hit in the bombardment. Luckily, no one was hurt, but it's so badly damaged that they're being forced to leave. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Dalia Abdulmonam, baker and Sudanese political commentator, and Dr. Samuel Romani, Oxford academic and author of Russia in Africa. The producers today were Olivia Case and Priyanka Deladia, The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.